1: Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Turbocharging tech, the US Senate agrees a $200 billion plus bill to counter rivals. Security stupidity, hackers compromise the colonial pipeline using a single old password. A mega rich make hay. Leaked data reveals just how little tax America's wealthiest pay. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to be with you as always this Wednesday. Last century was all about the U.S.-Russia space race, while today we're discussing the U.S.-China chip chase. Let me be clear, the U.S. Senate passing a massive research and spending bill focused on competing with China, accelerating development in essential technologies like robotics, artificial intelligence and chip making, of course. And we'll be speaking to the CEO of U.S. chip making giant Global Foundries to get their take on this bill and find out how they'll be spending the money, assuming it gets passed in the House. The U.S. and China have more than just hopes for technology dominance in the future in common. They also have higher inflation in common to China also announcing today that factory prices rose to a 13-year high, fueled by supply shortages and rising commodity prices. It's not yet translating to rising consumer prices, which suggests companies aren't passing those costs on. But will that remain the case? Well, we'll discuss shortly on the show. We also have US inflation data on tap on Thursday, too, and from the everything shortage in global economies to the drama shortage on global markets, the S&P 500 tantalizingly close to record highs and trying to move higher pre-market after a pretty flat close on Tuesday. In the meantime, though, we can add another meme stock to the team, Clover Health in the Clover, up some 85% in trading on Tuesday. It's up another 20%, I believe, pre-market today. Just to be clear, Clover is a medical insurance firm which recently went public via a SPAC and is up 185% in the past five sessions alone. Wowzers. Now, from the rally in memes, to US manufacturing dreams. Let's get to the drivers. China accusing the United States of, quote, paranoid delusion after the Senate passed a massive spending bill to tackle the rising tech threat from Beijing. The bill aims to boost America's homegrown tech sector through a sweeping investment worth more than $200 billion. Here to discuss, John Harwood joins us from Washington. David Culver is in Shanghai. Great to have you both with us. I have to say, John, first to you, it's an extraordinary feat of marketing that... Arguably an investment in technology that the U.S. needs regardless of the threat from China manages to pass with bipartisan ease under the guise of doing something to a threat or uh, tackle the threat of China. What does it mean in practice?
2: Well, it's not surprising that China is uh, discomfited by this development because you did get a substantial bipartisan majority, 19 Republicans to go with 49 Democrats, to pass this $200 billion Investment. It's a lot of money, $80 billion for the National Science Foundation. Uh, as you indicated in the lead in, robotics, artificial intelligence, semiconductors, all things that the United States uh, feels it needs to uh, invest in substantially to counter the growing threat from China. Some of the supply chain issues that we've been dealing with in during the pandemic and in the recovery from the pandemic, underscored uh, the need to, uh, uh, felt need within both parties to make this investment. Uh, and it's notable that at a time when uh, the US political system so often struggles to have the two parties come together, especially when you have a high profile an issue from a president, uh, this is a case where a Republican Senator, Todd Young of Indiana, a Democrat, Chuck Schumer of New York, who's been concerned about China for a long time, came together, crafted this bill, and managed to uh, uh, incorporate some of President Biden's priorities without it being seen as a big Biden initiative. Uh, That enabled it to pass by a large bipartisan majority. The House has now got it passed, and they'll have a, um, uh, a conference committee to resolve some differences, but nobody doubts that this is going to get to President Biden's desk.
1: David, come in here because some could step back and say, hang on a second, this looks pretty reminiscent of Made in China 2025 that the Americans looked at and were like, "Okay, hang on a second, this is really concerning for us too. As you would expect, China reacting with some uh, choice words. Let's call it that.
3: They're not happy about it, no question, Julia, and regurgitating some of the same lines that we've seen in recent months and even dating back to the Trump administration. What separates this is that, as you pointed out, a rarity in Washington. You had both sides agreeing and going forward. And now you have President Biden moving forward with some of the G7 members, likely to then drum up more support among allies. That puts more pressure on Beijing. And Beijing is responding, saying that this is Cold War ideology. They're saying that this is the U.S. trying to contain China, trying to prevent China from really coming to fruition in its development. And what we have seen from China, though, in recent months has been a push towards similar technology development. And especially when you look at what the National People's Congress put forward just a few months ago, and that was a projection to 2025, as you mentioned, estimating that as they get to that year, they will be spending some $580 billion in research and development alone. Now that's not even including what we've already seen play out and something that the U.S. is trying to catch up with, everything from the technology hubs to 5G technology, which really has already been in use here at the commercial level uh, for several months and quite successfully. So if you look at where China is now and where they're pushing forward, while they may see this as the U.S. trying to infringe on their domestic sovereignty, which is interesting that they point that out in some of their rebukes, they're also alluding to some of the other human rights concerns that the U.S. has put forward. And even in some of this legislation that's going forward, Julia, is an advocation for U.S. officials to not be able to attend the 2022 Beijing Olympics. All of this is putting China in a very difficult situation, certainly from a PR perspective.
1: Yeah, you know, I look at the monetary value of this as well in a 200 billion dollar plus bill, and it's incredibly important. And it's great to hear, John, that this will hit Biden's desk. But even in the footnotes here of this Senate legislation, they're saying China's investing aggressively over 150 billion dollars in semiconductor manufacturing specifically. I mean, this scale and the size of investment here, you know, has to be talked about, too. But, John, most important thing, when do we think, based on the timeline for agreeing all this, that the money starts flowing?
2: Oh, I think that'll be at least months down the road uh, Mm -hmm. because the House has got to act and then they're going to have their uh, a conference agreement, but this is uh, when you have a, a bipartisan consensus of this kind, it speeds the process along considerably. And this is something that, uh, while the uh, administration, the Biden administration, has been pursuing other elements of its agenda, uh, and those have been moving in slow motion, this has gone quite rapidly to uh, Senate passage. Uh, it's a remarkable moment, and uh, we're going to we uh, would certainly expect this to become law uh, within a few months, certainly by the end of the year.
1: David incredibly quickly because I have about a minute. I, I always hear and say to people that China seem to lose the, the race for the industrial revolution. and They don't want to lose the race of the technology revolution that's going on in the 21st century. Do they respond with more money in the face of this in your mind?
3: Likely they will push forward with more money. The investment is going to be something that's inevitable, especially as they've made those projections uh, with the National People's Congress. I think beyond that, though, what we're going to see roll out is an increased propaganda campaign. They're going to continue Mm. to put forward as though they're a developing nation that is being contained, as they put it, by the US. It's this effort to showcase to the rest of the world, really even pushing aside some of the more advanced uh, societies and looking at some of those developing countries, specifically those that have the Belt and Road Initiative investments within them, that they are being targeted unfairly, as they put it, by the United States. So I think you're going to see that more than anything else.
1: Yeah, you mentioned it, that international consensus as well. just happens that the G7 is meeting this week too. Guys, great to have you with us. John Howard, David Culver, thank you so much to both of you on that. OK, let's move on. Toughen up. The American Commerce Secretary wants businesses to ramp up cybersecurity after recent hacks revealed less than stellar defense measures. The CEO of one of the compromised companies, Colonial Pipeline, admitted having only single-factor authentication for remote access, meaning just a single password. Was needed.
0: It was a complicated password, so I, w- I want to be clear on that. It was not a colonial one, two, three type password.
1: Alex Markart joins us now. Alex, I watched that in awe. We're basically saying that my Gmail is in fact more secure than fuel supplies to the U.S. southeast. That's what we're saying.
4: It is. And, and Julia, that is such a critical point and a critical moment in yesterday's hearings. That's how those attackers who are believed to have been based in Russia got in uh, to the Colonial Pipeline IT system through what uh, Joseph Blount, the CEO, called a legacy VPN that only had what's known as single-factor authentication. So uh, what you heard there was Blount saying, OK, we only had one layer of defense, but it was, it was pretty complicated. He later went on to admit that, yes, uh, his general view of these things is that you need multifactor, authentication, which, uh, which is just baseline simple uh, cybersecurity practices these days. He also went on to say uh, that despite the fact that they spend um, tens of millions of dollars, around 40 million on average, in cybersecurity every year, uh, that they actually didn't have a plan for ransomware. And Julia, you know well, ransomware is not something that just sprung up in the last few weeks. This has been around for a long time. So, so that was rather surprising. Uh, the, the thrust of, of the hearings uh, yesterday and, and what we will again hear today in day two of these hearings, this time in the, in the House of Representatives, was that Joseph Blount um, made a full-throated defense of the fact that he paid uh, a ransom to these hackers to get the system, um, the, the pipeline back up and running. He said that in situations like this, when hackers get inside, you don't know what access they've gotten. So so the goal is to get operations back up and running. He made a $4.4 million payment uh, in Bitcoin. He said it was the hardest decision that he's ever had to make in his 39-year career, but he understood how critical the pipeline was to the country, how important uh, this was for the country to get that gas flowing again. Take a listen to a bit more of what he had to say.
0: I believe with all my heart, it was the right choice to make. But I want to respect those who see this issue differently. I also now state publicly that we quietly and quickly worked with the law enforcement in this matter from the start, which may have helped lead to the substantial recovery of funds announced by the DOJ this
4: week. So, Julia, that was another part of his defense. Yes, we paid this ransom, but we also told the FBI very quickly, and that's actually something that he's being thanked for by the Department of Justice. FBI investigators were then able to track that Bitcoin to a cryptocurrency wallet and recover more than half of it, the Bitcoin that they got back is worth, was worth around $2.3 million, uh, which is a, a rare coup um, for for the department and for the FBI against uh, this this growing wave of ransomware attacks, Julia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As we discussed yesterday, the unfortunate fact is, of course, that the Bitcoin, uh, the value of Bitcoins dropped so substantially that what was recovered was so much less. And that's part of the price that you pay with this. But Critical point there, Alex. No plan for ransomware. We've seen a 300% plus increase in ransomware attacks in the last year. Did you get the sense that there was alarm, recognition among Congress that we're not prepared? We don't really understand the threat that we're tackling. And in this case, just a simple non-verified password was enough to get access to critical infrastructure in the United States. And the US isn't alone in this. There's weaknesses all around the world.
4: That's right. And I think that's what I'm going to be watching out for today, Julia, in in this second day of hearings, particularly because Blount is going to be sitting next to a senior official from Mandiant, which is one of the biggest and and most uh, significant cybersecurity firms in the world. And they're the ones who have been helping out uh, at Colonial in the wake of this. And, And so I expect that we will see lawmakers pressing those two men a lot harder on their failures. Um, the, the fact that, you know, they are a critical infrastructure company um, that uh, that that went down because of a, their failure to essentially have very basic cybersecurity protocols in the wake of that attack. And, you know, we saw we saw ga- long lines at gas stations and gas prices spike. Um, as that pipeline was taken offline. The Biden administration did impose a new security directive specifically on the pipeline sector. Um, So it remains to be seen whether more regulation will come from the administration across critical infrastructure, infrastructure sectors and whether more action will come from Congress. Julia?
1: Yeah, more required. Alex Marcotte, thank you so much for that. Okay, back to China now, where the price of goods leaving factories is rising at its fastest pace in 13 years. The country's producer price index for last month jumped 9 percent from a year ago. China's surging inflation is threatening to spill over to the rest of the world. Or is it? Claire Sebastian has all the details for us. Claire, great to have you with us to explain this. So we're seeing factory prices rising. I'm not seeing that translating to, to consumer prices. So it kind of means that the companies themselves are, at least for now, warehousing these extra costs. The question is, do they start to pass it on? And does it filter into export prices too? And what does that mean?
5: Yeah, that is the big question, Jude. You're right. A big difference between the producer price index, the cost of those, uh, those manufactured goods sold to, to retailers and out into the economy uh, and consumer prices, which were only up 1.3% uh, in May. So a really big difference there. A couple of reasons behind this. One, you know, despite the fact that China has avoided a recession due to the pandemic and has been roaring back in terms of its recovery this year, we're still seeing some reluctance Among consumers, retail sales have not bounced back as fast as some were expecting, and that may explain why producers don't wanna to, want to pass on those prices. They don't wanna lose customers by forcing prices up too fast. So that's one potential reason. The other is that the government is managing the situation. This is something that the Chinese government does with the economy. They have been cracking down on things like commodity price speculation, trying to bring down the prices of raw materials that have really been contributing to these producer prices. They, they've lifted some steel tariffs. We're seeing local governments lifting some curbs on steel production. They're tolerating a, a, a significant increase over the past year in the value of the currency versus the dollar that gives them more purchasing power for for importing commodities, which, of course, we're seeing some scarcity on a global scale as they support their recovery. So, So they're doing a number of different things. And of course, many economists still believe that this will be temporary. And we are seeing in some areas commodity prices starting to come down. So it looks like it could be temporary. But for the moment, this is a sign to the Chinese authorities, Julia, that their recovery still needs to be supported.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At this hour, President Joe Biden and his wife are on their way to the UK for his first G7 summit as US President. Their first stop, Suffolk, England, to greet US troops at REF Mildenhall. From there, they'll head to Cornwall for the meeting, and a meeting with the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Nick Robertson joins us live for a preview of President Biden's important European trip. He's first foreign trip of course since becoming us president the tone i think will be very different for perhaps from the uh, the former president's uh, visits across europe and with some of these leaders i'll miss the long and extended handshakes but plenty of tough topics to discuss too
6: Uh, There will be. He'll have a bilateral with Boris Johnson on Thursday and Boris Johnson would like to have uh, President Biden's support on uh, this sort of post Brexit wrangling, if you will, with the European Union, particularly over the Northern Ireland Protocol as well. President Biden is more predisposed to support the Irish and the EU on that. Johnson is going to want Biden to uh, open up travel between the UK and the United United Kingdom. Um, he's going to want to strengthen that relationship between the two countries. We may see progress on that. That's that's an area to look towards for tomorrow. But the big issues the uh, the pandemic the recovery after the pandemic the vaccination uh, of as many people as possible around the world in a shorter space of time as possible that's going to be big on the agenda president biden has has talked about you know lifting the um, or, or waiving rather the, uh, the 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 uh, uh, patterns on uh, on on the, on the medicines on the vaccines and this is not something that's supported by the european union so expect intense discussion on on that. Uh, but, you know, there will be other ways. There's talk from other other former world leaders that there should be a really strong commitment. Uh, billions of dollars should be spent in making sure that uh, vaccines reach uh, the whole of the population of the planet. Uh, Boris Johnson's talking about vaccinating the whole planet by the end of 2022. So that's that's one big part of the agenda. But there will be other things. China and Russia will be on the agenda, important for President Biden. But I think I, I think when you look at this, stand back and look at it. The big takeaway is this is sort of getting back to business as usual by world leaders in summits. This will be the first time they get to sit and talk face to face in almost two years. And that is a sign, really, that the recovery is on the way. But they're going to want to make this recovery green uh, uh, and talk a lot about environmentally environmentally friendly practices. Carbon zero will be on the agenda as well. Uh, These will be uh, just a few of the things that get spoken about over the next few days.
1: Yeah, eyes on a post-pandemic future in more ways than one. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Okay, Bitcoin clearing another hurdle. El Salvador is now officially the first country to adopt the cryptocurrency as a legally valid form of payment alongside the US dollar. A majority of lawmakers have approved the proposal. El Salvador's president says using Bitcoin will promote innovation and economic development. Okay, still so to come here on First Move Cash for Chips, America's biggest chip maker on what the Senate's more than $200 billion investment will buy. And Get Rich Quick, an explosive new report reveals that Bezos, Bloomberg and fellow billionaires pay almost nothing in federal income taxes. And it's all perfectly legal. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. More pre-summer sluggishness on Wall Street with tech set to inch higher for the fourth straight session. Investors perhaps Waiting for tomorrow's US inflation data before making any big market commitments, which makes sense. Treasury investors also are waiting the data too. 10 year bond yields are currently sitting near three month lows and breaking below that 1.5%. Investors also bracing for a big $38 billion 10 year auction later today. Inflation concerns throwing Campbell's. In the soup, shares of the food giant down more than 8%. As you can see, pre-market earnings far from delicious. Campbell's also cutting forecasts due to higher raw material and transportation costs. In the meantime, a new report by ProPublica reveals just how little some of the world's richest people pay in taxes If anything at all, the list includes Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world, Elon Musk and Michael Bloomberg, among others. The raw data came from an unidentified source, unknown even to ProPublica, it says. Christine Romans joins us on this story, and we should probably start there. There is nothing illegal, it seems, about what these individuals have done, except the fact in this conversation that the way that the data was got may have been illegal. So we should just point that out. But this is about a system that focuses on taxing wages, rather than taxing wealth, and this is what it comes down to.
7: And you're right. And look, there is an investigation into how this secret material was leaked. This is private information of these people. So there's an investigation there. The White House is is clear on that. The White House also saying, reminding, reiterating that this is why the president would like to raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for some of his his endeavors. Look, when you look at these numbers from 2014 to 2018, uh, the wealth growth of Elon Musk, look, he added 13 billion to his wealth. His tax rate there, about 3%. Michael Bloomberg, Jeff Bezos, less than 1%, and Warren Buffett, one-tenth of 1%. And here's why. They are making their money on investments, on property, on on things that they are buying and holding and are appreciating and then are being valued. And it's tricky on how you tax wealth and and how we do that. We know how to tax earnings. You and I are taxed on our earnings all the time. The average people are taxed on their earnings. The very wealthy can grow this big tax pile and grow it with relatively little uh, tax uh, exposure because of the way the, way the system is designed and is completely uh, legal. Let me give you a step back a bit and show you some other numbers here that ProPublica and this expose put through here. So the richest 25 Americans, uh, their wealth in 2018 was $1.1 It would take 14.3 million typical wage earners to have that same pile of cash as those just 25 people. The tax bill for the richest, $1.9 The tax bill for all of those millions of wage earners, $143 billion, right? So the point here is that your wages are taxed more consistently and higher, and that's what's sort of driving the money into the federal coffers to pay for our country, less this big growing cash
1: pile of so many of these rich people. Yeah. Simplify the tax system if you want to address this. It's funny, Christine, I was just talking about how U.S. bond yields are tracking down. Stocks are doing incredibly well because the expectation here is that we're simply not going to see this monster infrastructure spending bill that you and I were talking about and have been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks. Expectations are falling that something far more our expectations of building, them, I'm sorry, that, that something far smaller perhaps is going to be done. And that's why you're not seeing the alarm perhaps in the bond markets here yeah. over big borrowing, a quite frankly. Do you think something like this resets the conversation with those that come in and say, hey, we need to be looking at a wealth tax?
7: Uh, you know, I wonder. And it's interesting because there are people who are actually on this list who have said that the, we should reconsider our tax code and we should think about how to tax the wealthy. For right. for example, George Soros, for example, somebody from uh, his office said that, you know, he didn't pay, he lost money on his investments in 2016 to 2018. Therefore, he did not owe federal income taxes in those years. Mr. Soros has long supported higher taxes for wealthy Americans. Uh, Buffett has also said, look, we need to figure out how to tax the, the rich, how to to raise taxes on the wealthy. Elizabeth Warren, the senator, when she was running for president, she was talking about a wealth tax on all uh, in, uh, all wealth above um, what 50 billion dollars. Tax it at two percent. Um, so you know, the first 50 billion is free. After that, tax the wealth. So that's what we haven't done in this country very well. Is um, is tax wealth right things that are investments things that are uh, that grow and change in value every year and over time um, but there's a sure certainly is a big pile of money there and for those top 25
1: it is growing pretty consistently yeah they're not doing anything that they're not allowed to do saying don't right. look at me look at congress here we are christine even romans. after
7: tax reform remember even yeah. after tax reform it's still even designed even this way tax
1: reform christine romans thank you for that nice the market opens next stay with us Welcome back to First Move, U.S. President Joe Biden on his way to the United Kingdom for his first G7 summit, his plane taking off within the past hour. In the meantime, U.S. markets trying to gain a bit of altitude, too, with the bulls hoping to push the S&P 500 to fresh records. A heavy lift the past few days as investors await new positive catalysts, inflation pressures and ongoing parts and labor shortages remain a dominant Wall Street theme Pink giant Sherwin-Williams, soup superstar Campbell's and U.S. restaurant chain Chipotle all seeing growing pricing pressures. Chipotle raising food prices by 4% to pay for the higher wages needed to attract new workers. The battle for labor set to intensify, too, with new numbers showing more than 9 million job openings currently in the United States. Wow. And back to our top story. The Innovation and in Competition Act is now headed to the U.S. House after the Senate passed a rare bipartisan legislation. It would provide $52 billion in assistance to semiconductor manufacturers, including Global Foundries, the world's third biggest chip maker. It has factories here in the United States, Singapore and Germany and counts Qualcomm and Broadcom among its many customers. It's also the only manufacturer of the U.S. military's most sensitive chips. And joining us now is the CEO of Global. Foundries, Tom Caulfield. Tom, fantastic to have you on the show once again. This is an important milestone. I feel like you must be very pleased, if not entirely satisfied, because I vividly remember our last conversation on this subject and the dollar amounts that are required.
8: Well, good morning, Julia. Uh, you know, yesterday's vote was historic. Mm. The Senate did the right thing. Look, it, it not only boosts semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S., but more importantly, it literally impacts every uh, every single one of our lives, and how important semiconductors are to everything we do. I
1: mean, you told me last time that 12 percent of semiconductors at this moment are manufactured in the United States. I know there's a timing mismatch here, and it takes time to scale up and ramp up production. But where does this money get us from 12 percent to, in your mind?
8: Look, I think uh, that's that's a, a it's it's a great point to make here. The US needs to use this to set an ambitious goal. Remember today we're 12% uh, of the the semiconductor manufacturing in this country. US headquartered companies represent 49% of the demand. We set an ambitious goal. We fund it the right way. We should double this to 24% in the next decade.
1: Wow. So it's significant. Do you know how much money you're going to get at Global Foundries versus Intel, for example?
8: No, these will all be project based. I think we'll get our fair share. We have to make sure that when this money is distributed, that we don't concentrate it in any particular part of the semiconductor market. We need to make sure that memory is covered, uh, single digit nanometer for high speed digital applications, the broad pervasive uh, market segments that GF plays in. We need to make sure the whole portfolio of semiconductors gets covered. If we're going to do something to make sure not only we have enough to manufacture, but that we create the supply chain security for semiconductors in the nation.
1: Without that in mind, what's fair in terms of size? I'm pushing you now. You can avoid answering.
8: <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll take somewhere between that, you know, 10 to 20 percent of that is, is in, hmm. in that segment um, that I spoke about that we play in.
1: And since we last spoke, you also announced you're moving your headquarters to New York, where I know it, your most advanced semiconductor facility lies. I mean, this is a huge announcement in itself. But is that where some of the spending that you're talking about is going to go? If not, Yeah, all. we will
8: take the, the, our spending for growing our, our, our U.S. footprint. First and foremost, in our, our most advanced facility, we call it Eight. It's in the capital region of upstate New York. We will uh, not only fill out the capacity we have there, we will then look to put new brick and mortar in the ground. Um, You know, I think this can allow us to accelerate our capacity expansion a minimum of three years, maybe more. And we'll also use some of this money to uh, update and create new capacity in our Burlington facility.
1: I was going to ask you that, how quickly you can scale up production here. You're saying this will accelerate plans by three years
8: yeah there was a certain amount of investment gf could do on its own in these partnership right. type investments we can accelerate that yes
1: what about hiring
8: yeah i think that's we talk about supply chain security we talk about supply chain and, and making waivers i think the biggest challenge we're going to have as an industry not just df okay. is making sure we have all the talented people around to uh, uh to, to, to work in these, in these factories, to contribute to these factories. And that's a big issue. That's a, you know, a, a big part of, the, uh, uh, of what GF invests. And in. you know, 5% of all the hours worked in our company is, is training our, our, our staff. We bring in uh, 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 people right out of high school, right out of college, out of the military, and we put them in intensive training programs to create the skills they need to do these types of jobs.
1: Yeah, I mean that's fascinating 5% of working hours. You know, I I was looking at the Senate legislation um last night. And I noted one of the quotes in there said that China's aggressively investing over $150 billion in semiconductor manufacturing specifically. And it goes back to the original point about whether or not this is enough money. And I just wondered whether we need to view this as a kind of um, technology arms race relative to China or the fact that they're saying this is all built on some paranoid delusion has some merit. How do you view this sort of global competition, this battle that we're in?
8: Look, let's recall the problem we're trying to solve today in the U.S. Today, nearly 50 percent of the semiconductor demand is generated through U.S. headquartered semiconductor companies, while only 12 percent of semiconductor supply comes out of U.S. manufacturing. By the way, that's down from 37 percent a little over a decade ago. Yeah. Meanwhile, over 70 percent of the semiconductor foundry manufacturing is concentrated in Taiwan, you know, a few hundred miles from China. This is a critically important dynamic in our industry it creates not only supply chain security issues, but national security issues, and quite frankly, economic security issues. And that's why the, you know, the passage of this bill sets the foundation for the U.S. to set this ambitious goal I spoke about in a moment. This is really important to get this balance in place to make sure something so critical to the world economy, national security, economic security, uh, that the U.S. has its fair share of that capability in manufacturing.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could take the emotion out of it and we just focus on the uh, the facts as you laid out there and that tells you everything you need to know. Um, Tom, I know we talked about this last time as well and I asked you about the IPO and you said, look, you're just focusing on meeting customer needs, but these rumors, they do keep circulating. So you have to tell me something else now to uh, fob me off until the next time I ask or another report All right, appears. Julie,
8: round two. <laughs>
1: round two. <I'm> round sure. <laughs> two of many, I'm sure.
8: <laughs> look, uh, of course, we always are evaluating our, you know, our strategic options. And it's important that we look at all the ways to go grow our company. Um, I'm just gonna have to lie silent on this one at this time, but I will tell you that uh, for us, the most important thing that we do each and every day is figure out how to get more capacity uh, online as fast as possible, how to get as much out of our capacity today and keep uh, you know, leaning on our and, and thanking our 15,000 employees worldwide who do a great job each and every day. I know again that's not the answer you're looking for. Maybe the third time will be a charm.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll never stop trying. Um, on a on a more serious note, and it's come up this week, and I'm sure it's something that you're also are, are sort of finding difficult to discuss at this stage as well. And you can you can bear with me on the question, but IBM requesting a two and a half billion dollar payment for investment decisions, legacy decisions. I do, I sort of looked at the timing this week in light of the rumors of your valuation and it sort of made me wonder, can you give us any sense of, of where Global Foundry stands on on that request?
8: Yeah, sure, Julia. Look, Global Foundries. you know, we took legal action to defend ourselves, and maybe more importantly, to defend our reputation. And especially at a time when, you know, semiconductor manufacturers never been more crucial. You know, quite frankly, you know, I have to tell you, I'm very disappointed. You know, it's coming from a company that we've had such a strong partnership with. It's an action, as you say, coming two and a half years of silence. Right. And, you know, a little bit on a personal note, I grew up as an executive at IBM. It, it was yeah. a great company. And that's what makes this sort of behavior so so much more disappointing. I think more importantly, and this is where we always have to keep focusing, you know, what's the issue here? As an industry, we need to stay focused on solving the semi-supply chain imbalance and restoring U.S. manufacturing leadership. I can't waste, not not me, all of us shouldn't be wasting time or energy on frivolous matters like this. This industry is better than this. And, you know, GF's going to do its part to solve these more important issues.
1: And that's the focus for now. Oh, I think I lost him there. Tom, I don't know if you yes? he can hear me. Oh, you're still there. Yep. I was just saying, and that's the focus for now. And on that, I'm going to let you go. Tom,
8: Well, thanks for having me. Congratulations.
1: Congratulations on this announcement and uh, progress ahead. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Tom Caulfield, CEO of Global Foundries there. So thank you. Okay, we've got a big fintech IPO coming up after the break. The name, you may never have heard of it. It's customers. You definitely have. The CEO of Marquetta is next. Welcome back to First Move, ringing the opening bell over at the Nasdaq. A few moments ago, Marketa, the payments company which works behind the scenes, providing brands like Uber, DoorDash and Instacart with access to card services. Marketa's IPO raised more than $1.2 billion, giving it a market valuation of over $14 billion. What caught my eye here. Their biggest customer, Square, accounted for over 70% of its revenue last year, so what's the risk of so many eggs in one basket when there are so many cards in our wallet? Jason Gardner is founder and CEO of Makata and joins us now. Jason, never mind that for a second. This is a huge day for you and the team. Tell me how it feels.
9: Hi, Julia. Thank you for, for having us. It is, it's really exciting. It's such a great step in our journey.
1: I mean, investors are looking at this, and we've laid out what you do as a business in brief terms here. But for investors looking into buying into Marketa today, what is the future growth opportunity that that this company represents in your mind?
9: So Marketa is an open platform for companies to build card products like Visa and MasterCard cards, Uh, physical plastic cards, probably like the one in your wallet or your purse. Uh, They can be uh, virtual. They can be tokenized to fit into Google Pay and Samsung Pay and Apple Pay. And if you think about the opportunity, it's tremendous. $6.7 trillion in carded volume in the United States. And we are simply scratching the surface at $60 billion in volume. There's a $30 trillion opportunity in carded volume outside the United States. And then $74 trillion in global money movement. And if you truly believe that everything is moving to modern platforms and a digitization of catch, you've got to believe in the future of Marketa that this is truly a generational business.
1: I mean, those are monster numbers. This is a, a huge growth opportunity in the United States. It's also a huge growth opportunity, it seems, internationally. When I when I sort of break down the numbers, though, the bulk of the revenues do come from from the United States. And what I was reading about in the prospectus is interchange fees, and this is the cost that that um, merchants pay when when customers use those cards. Um, you do say in there, fees subject to intense legal and regulatory scrutiny. Um, is there any reason to suggest those fees are going to be reduced in any way in the short to medium term, just based on what was in the prospectus?
9: We do not see any change no. in the short and medium term. What, what people are referring to when, when you read this is the Durban Amendment. The Durban Amendment was enacted in 2010 to protect consumers and protect small community banks. And that is a uh, uh, lifeblood of Marquette. And it sustains a lot of different companies around the world. Um, as we think about around the world, uh, only 2% of Marketa's revenue is derived uh, internationally. So that's an extraordinarily oppor- uh, large opportunity for us. Most of our revenue, 98%, is in the United States. Uh, it's where we got started. It's where we power companies like Square, Instacart, DoorDash, Affirm, Klarna, Ramp. Uh, the list goes on. And we're just really, really excited about today uh, and our customer support and partnership worldwide.
1: I guess those interchange fees don't exist, though, outside of the United States in the same way. So how do you see that sort of balance between the revenues that you're generating, 98% in the United States? I think that was the number versus 2% sort of evolving over time.
9: That's right. The majority of interchange, the largest forms of interchange are certainly within the United States. Uh, There are other forms of interchange outside the United States. Uh, We have created different models specifically in Europe. Uh, that is not interchange-based, uh, and we've been able to build a successful successful business in Europe, also a successful business in Australia and New Zealand, where also interchange is regulated.
1: Yeah, so not, not sounding worried at all by that. The other thing that people have pointed out to me, and I mentioned it in the introduction, was um, at least for now, and I'm sure the business will diversify, the reliance on Square. And it wasn't necessarily a concern that perhaps in, in 2024, when this deal with them runs away, it's the idea that they've got three years to perhaps build the kind of technology that you're providing in the card issuance operations and do it in-house. Are you worried about that?
9: We're not focused on the improbable. Square <laughs> is a phenomenal customer. Their success is our success, and that success is driven by relationship, it's driven by technical innovation, and it's, it's driven by our ability to operate at, at massive scale. They are a tremendous customer and really a shining example of, of modern card issuing. But if you truly believe that the $6.7 trillion in carded volume is an enormous opportunity for Marketa, you have to believe that there's many, many more squares in our future, and we certainly believe that we have some on our platform today.
1: Yeah. You know, speaking of the improbable to the probable, I know you power um, Coinbase's Visa debit card and also um, I saw Shakepay as well. These announcements at the back end of last year and I got very excited. That's the, the Canadian crypto exchange. Do you think and you can tell me what your views are here of whether we're at the point in your mind where sort of cryptocurrencies work alongside bank accounts, credit cards and, and one can be as much a store as value as also being spent
9: Marketa powers Coinbase, you're correct. Uh, We power ShakeBay, which is, as you said, the the Canadian Coinbase. The ability to spend crypto at the point of sale is a phenomenal opportunity. It converts crypto to the point of sale. So you're actually spending fiat currency, U.S. dollars, euros, and it's a tremendous opportunity. I think the fact that we are all talking about crypto and blockchains (laughs) and different form of crypto for so long uh, the, the ship has sailed. Uh, we think that crypto is going to be a great opportunity for mercat in the future uh, to, to really connect that to point of sale so people can buy goods and services, whether online or offline.
1: What do you think the biggest impediment to that is in your mind?
9: Well, it's, it's regulation. Um, regulation, you know, and new forms of currency. But we've seen, especially here in the United States, uh, where states have embraced that. Uh, you see Janet Yellen talking about it. Um, it is really part of our culture now, uh, whether it's blockchain or whether it's crypto. And we're going to see more at the point of sale. We are going to see regulation, but I believe we're going to see the, really the connection of crypto to the point of sale eventually. It's, it's truly inevitable.
1: Fantastic to have you on the show, Jason. Congratulations on a huge day, I know, for you and your team. Uh, enjoy it. Jason Gardner, founder Thank you, Julia. and Great CEO you of again. Likewise. Thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. If you remember, before the break, the CEO of Global Foundries was telling us how crucial Taiwan's semiconductor industry is to the functioning of the global economy. While well, Taiwan is now not only facing a surge in COVID cases, but also one of the worst droughts in decades. Will Ripley explores how that's presenting a challenge, not only to the country, but to the manufacturing sector too.
10: Taiwan's worst drought in more than half a century making this island look more like a desert. Cracks snake across the bottom of Sun Moon Lake. Taiwan's largest body of water parched. Reservoirs across the island evaporating. Recent rains put a small dent in a big problem, a problem scientists predict will only get worse.
6: Our projections show that it's going to become more and more uh, uh, serious in, in, in the future.
10: Climate change models paint a dire picture for Taiwan. Stronger typhoons, more flooding, less frequent rain, future droughts far more severe. This mural gives you an idea of what Baoshan Reservoir usually looks like. This is what it looks like now. Water levels are right around 30%. They were less than 3% before monsoon season kicked off in mid-May. Taiwan is experiencing its worst drought in decades. That's a big problem, because this reservoir is the primary water source for the Shinju Science Park, home to nearly 600 electronics companies, including the world's leading semiconductor manufacturer, TSMC. Why is this drought a problem for Taiwan's semiconductor industry?
6: Every layer, we need a lot of chemical process. And every process, we need to clean the surface. We need to clean by water, flowing, pure water.
10: Semiconductor manufacturers are searching for solutions. Water recycling, purifying seawater, both years away from quenching the insatiable thirst of chip factories. Making chips also requires huge amounts of energy. Taiwan, like the world, is trying to fight the climate crisis, cutting its carbon footprint while phasing out nuclear power. The island's semiconductor industry is investing big in green energy. Hundreds of giant wind turbines line the coast. Solar panels dot the landscape.
6: We need to cut down our carbon dioxide emission. But on the other hand, we need to generate more electricity.
10: Just after we arrived, rolling blackouts hit the Taiwanese capital energy demand grows as temperatures rise. Taiwan's top energy consumer? Semiconductors, vital to the global economy, powering everything from cars to computers. If Taiwan's power and water supply is in peril, the whole world could feel the pain.
1: Wow. Okay, before we go, One of the greatest mysteries of the cosmos has finally been explained. And it's actually something I've been lucky enough to see myself. It's been finally confirmed that space weather causes the amazing sight of the northern lights. Well, to be fair, that's a simple version. Scientists from the University of Iowa have proved they are the result of, quote, powerful electromagnetic waves during geomagnetic storms. Hmm. So there's your twinkly end to today's first move. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow.